0: Welcome to the Undisputedly Pauline podcast. I'm Benjamin Naismith, and this is my audio blog. I'm a seminary graduate and also a PhD candidate in mathematics, but this podcast is about my interest in the role of experience in theology and about the Apostle Paul as an exemplar of an experiential Christian faith. In this episode, I share a sermon that I gave at Next Church in Kingston, Ontario about hope and the God-forsaken experience. You may notice that in Mark and Matthew's Gospel, Jesus dies crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In contrast, Luke's Gospel has Jesus die commending his spirit into his Father's hands. In this sermon, I try to bring together these two aspects of Christian experience using Paul's basis for hope in Romans 5.5. That is the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Hi. So we're looking at passages in the lectionary, like we said earlier. And, uh, this week, the lectionary happens to include one of my f- favorite passages, which is Romans five five. And uh, apparently, today's also Trinity Sunday in the church calendar, so I'm going to try to say something very brief about that at the end. Hopefully, it'll be helpful, but it probably won't be too helpful. So, <laughs> yeah. So some of you gathered by now. Um, I'm very interested in theology for some reason or, or another. And with any interest, it can be a little bit lonely if you don't have friends to to share it with. And thankfully, I do have a, a couple of theology friends, but I wouldn't say that I have a few friends like that. Um, these are friends who I mostly talk theology with. And uh, by the way, any of you could become my theology friend <laughs> if you just talk to me about theology. <laughs> it's a pretty lonely uh, interest, so... Um, yeah, so I have a theology friend in California uh, who shares my love of theology, and he once shared something with me that I think was pretty profound. And this is what he said. He said, I want to live in the dialectical tension between Mark fifteen thirty four and Luke twenty-three forty-six. So So what are those two verses? Uh, what he's saying is he wants to live in the tension between a Jesus whose last words are on the cross are, um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in Mark. And uh, Jesus, whose last words are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's in uh, Luke. And do you notice that there is a difference between those two phrases and maybe a tension between those two phrases? And I'm convinced that we need to do justice to both sayings if we're going to understand the Christian faith and, and make it our own. Okay, so how can we make sense of both? Uh, to make sense of both statements, we got to ask questions like, is there hope in a God-forsaken place? Um, is there any hope for the God-forsaken? Can we find a hope that's stronger than anything that might assault it? Uh, can we have a clear-sighted and sober view of the world with all of its injustices and um, all of its catastrophes and still cling to a hope that's not naive or overconfident? A brutal question is, um, is hope at bottom a kind of self-deception or does it actually rest on truth and, and power? And I think that our passage today, which I haven't read yet, but I will, the passage in Romans points us in the right direction. And um, we're talking about Romans 5.5, 5, Romans 5, 5. there Paul writes, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. I think that's uh, the key to the questions I've just been asking. So, so another, a philosopher who I appreciate and um, who I also, uh, who I also thankfully consider a theology friend, his name is Paul Moser. Uh, he works in uh, lives in Chicago. He's called this verse Romans five five the most significant statement in Christian literature pertaining to knowledge of God. And in this passage, we find a firm foundation for. Um, for Christian, hoping against hope. And that foundation is an act of God that reaches us in the present. The verse describes a basis for hope that actually impinges upon our individual and our collective experience. Um, It's the love of God poured into our hearts today through the Spirit of God. And elsewhere, Paul calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of Jesus. He uses those two terms as if they mean the same thing. So we could instead say that Christian hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit of Jesus, which has been given to us. Uh, Our experience of the love of God comes by way of the Spirit of Jesus. And this Spirit is the Spirit of someone who both felt God forsaken and who also entrusted himself into the hands of his Father. So what I'm trying to do today is explain what I just said in a little bit more detail. Uh, and I want to describe my basis for Christian hope, or at least what I take to be Paul's basis for Christian hope. And I want to try to explain what it means to live in the tension between uh, Mark fifteen thirty-four and Luke twenty-three forty-six. So first of all, what does it mean uh, to feel God-forsaken? And I'm sure that many of us have felt God-forsaken. And those of us who haven't felt God-forsaken... I fear that uh it's on the horizon. It's something that's in our future, right? So, in fact, uh we usually do everything we can to avoid feeling God-forsaken. We want to put it out of our minds. And if we see other people who seem God-forsaken, we try to look away from them so we don't have to face it. Um But the central image and the source of power in the Christian faith is the cross of Jesus Christ, and Jesus found himself, and we could even say that he placed himself among the God-forsaken. So as Christians, we can't look away from the God-forsaken experience without uh, compromising something that's at the center of the Christian faith. So let me suggest that the feeling of being God-forsaken is... Maybe among other things, it's a feeling of deep disappointment and even confusion that comes when God does not meet our expectations. We expect something from God, and it doesn't happen. Maybe God will protect us, and yet we end up being harmed. Um, Maybe God will provide, and yet we go hungry. Maybe God's supposed to vindicate us, and yet we get ridiculed. Um, Maybe God will heal us, and yet we get weaker. Maybe God's supposed to bless our plans, and yet they fail. Maybe God is supposed to favor his people, and yet the wicked prosper. So perhaps you've noticed that uh, this experience of God-forsakenness inspires a large portion of what we've uh, come to call Scripture. So consider the long story of, um, of Israel, the people of Israel, as we find it in our Bible. We've got Jacob's descendants. They're the people of Israel, and they, um, they're they in slavery in Egypt, and they're delivered from slavery in Egypt. And after a long journey through the wilderness, that's our first clue, uh, followed by generations of turmoil, they find eventually end up forming a kingdom of their own. And that kingdom reaches an apparent zenith during the reigns of David and Solomon. That's the golden age of, of, of Israel in the Bible. But then it immediately divides into two kingdoms. And uh, a couple of generations, well, several generations later, it gets shipwrecked at the hands of godless Babylon and Assyria. And the people end up getting sent into exile, and the temple to Israel's God is destroyed. And so a major portion of the Old Testament is dedicated to exploring a national experience of God-forsakenness. That's why it's so full of, like, trying to explain, why did God leave us? Is he coming back? What's next? They're just shipwrecked in this God-forsaken national experience, and they spend a lot of effort trying to think about it and describe it and work it out. Um, they want to know, what could it possibly mean for God's special people to face a national catastrophe like that? And out of that collective experience, uh, an expectation forms in Israel amongst the exiled people, that God is going to send a Savior, and the other word is Messiah. Another word for that in Greek would be Christos, or Christ. And the New Testament authors and the early Christian movement are the people who think that the Savior, the expectation for whom formed out of this God-forsaken experience of national crisis, is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus is somehow the one who's supposed to rectify this national experience of God-forsakenness. And uh, yet, Jesus is himself crucified and finds himself God-forsaken. So, in many ways, it seems like the cure has become worse than the disease. So, a, cr- a common scriptural thread, as I see it, is that Those who wrestle with God, and that's what the word Israel means. It means those who wrestle with God. Um, They don't simply ascend from one victory to another. Instead, God leads those who follow on a surprising path to places that are paradoxically best described as God-forsaken, at least from the perspective of what you might have previously expected God to do. There's always a temptation in Christianity to embrace something that some people have called a theology of triumph, a theology in which we live in a golden age where God is no longer dangerous, and it's basically just peace and prosperity on the horizon. Uh, But I'm convinced that the truth and the future belongs to something else called a theology of the cross, which is a theology that doesn't hide or obscure the God-forsaken experience of Jesus. I believe that the evidence that we find in the New Testament suggests that Jesus himself was in fact surprised by his God and Father, and he allowed his own expectations to change with time. Jesus was not born with all the answers, right? Obviously, he was not born with all the answers. What's not so obvious, and I think it's true, is that he didn't actually die with all the answers either. Um, Jesus began by preaching pretty much the same message as John the Baptist, and that message was, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He began his work with a genuine offer to the people of Israel uh, from their God, and it's an offer of reconciliation. And it's especially directed to the leaders of the people who would decide which direction the nation was going to go. Uh, Jesus believed that Israel was God's vineyard and that the leaders were like the tenants of the vineyard and their job was to produce fruit for the owner. What is that fruit? Um could be the just treatment of their neighbor and other things. And God had sent messengers, which are the prophets, uh, to the tenants of the vineyard, but the leaders had always rejected or, or mistreated them. Uh, and as Jesus proclaimed his message, he was actually surprised that the people with the greatest faith were not even members of his own people of Israel. Remember how he's surprised at the Roman centurion and his faith. He's also surprised at the uh, Syrophoenician woman and and her faith, people who are outside of his uh, target audience. Before long, Israel's leaders attribute his miracles to the power of Satan rather than the power of Israel's God. So as in the parable of the vineyard, Jesus begins to understand that God's love for Israel is going to require a final climactic offer of reconciliation. Um, God was sending a son and not just a servant. And Jesus was this very son. And whatever Israel and his leaders did to Jesus, the son, that would count as being done to, to God, the Father. Remember that Jesus wept over Jerusalem Uh, He wept knowing that because of the hardness of the hearts of the people and its leaders, even God's best offer of a son was going to be rejected. Uh, Jesus shared God's deep love for Israel, and he wanted nothing more that they would embrace their God by embracing the Son of God. And yet... Um, Jesus believed that God's love for Israel was actually going to require him to provoke the leaders and inevitably die at their hands. And Luke describes Jesus telling some of the people in the crowd not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves. The death of Jesus would be the judgment of God upon a world at war with God, a world that hates God without even actually knowing it. Um, God's judgment upon the world was to permit the world to destroy its own Savior to bring human sin to a point of moral apocalypse or a decisive unveiling. And so Jesus finds himself God-forsaken, having truly wondered up to the very last moment whether God would in fact protect him and find another way. he was awaiting a rescue that never came, but he was resolved to obey his father at great cost to the very end, no matter what the outcome. Why? Because of a shared love for Israel and a concern for the holy name of his Father. And in the end, uh, his God and Father does in fact withdraw all protection, and the worst thing that could have happened does happen. And by obediently sharing in God's love for God's beloved enemies, Jesus finds himself paradoxically God-forsaken. So all this seems very bleak, and it really should seem bleak, because... Um, because it is. I've mentioned already that the cross of Christ is, uh, or can be described as the the day of God's judgment upon the world. A few years ago, well, when I was younger, I used to think the judgment day was in the future, but now I feel like the judgment day is in the past and also kind of in the present. Um, yeah, it was the day of the unveiling of our proclivity to oppose God Oppose the love of God manifest in the person of Jesus. Jesus died because we, as people, prefer to cling to our ways of being and living and thinking and organizing, even when confronted by the righteous love of God, um, manifest in a living, breathing person. He died because he challenged those In authority, those who claim to mediate the knowledge of God to others by way of their elite interpretation of their tradition or their scripture or priesthood, which is who gets to control those things. Um, He died because even though the crowds enjoyed when he humiliated their leaders or embarrassed them, Jesus nevertheless refused to give the crowds what they wanted. He didn't give them the prosperity and the victory that they demanded in the form that they expected. They wanted to crown him king by force so they could appropriate his power and influence for their own purpose. He didn't do that, so eventually they turned against him too. Uh, Jesus died because Pilate, the government official, f- he feared being brought low in the eyes of Caesar more than having the blood of innocent people on his hands. That was more important to him. Um, Jesus died alone because at the crucial moment, The men who he called disciples, they didn't actually share his experience of the Father as an ever-loving divine imperative. Jesus implored them to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane to prepare them for what was coming next. But they couldn't conceive of a future in which God would actually basically go all the way, require the life of God's chosen one. Um, They were a stumbling block to him, and then they became stumbling blocks to themselves. And it's worth mentioning that only a few of his woman followers remained with him to the end. So what does Jesus what does it mean then that Luke says Jesus says, "Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, especially against this stark backdrop of um, God forsakenness. Uh, it was obedience to the love of God that led Jesus to die among the God-forsaken in the first place. It wasn't simply in the last moment that he entrusted himself into the hands of his father. His whole life is spent enacting that that phrase. His mission to Israel is a mission that's driven by uh, the love of God for Israel. It's a mission of costly reconciliation, and it's and towards the end, it looks like it's a failing mission. Honestly, this side of that side of the cross, as it becomes clear that. that his mission is going to cost him his life, Luke tells us that Jesus sent his face towards Jerusalem. He resolved to follow this through, uh, even if it went as, as bad as possible. And the whole process of coming to realize that obedience to God is going to cost Jesus his own life was a process of entrusting himself to God. And this process led Jesus from the height of popularity and possible usefulness in ministry, so to speak, Um to actual depths of God-forsakenness. It's really interesting to read um, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness kind of with this in mind. We only find this phrase about Jesus commending his spirit into his Father's hands in Luke. It's not in Matthew or, or Mark. But the whole trajectory of the life of Jesus is probably best summarized by it, by the statement, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And all of the Gospels show him doing that very thing. So put another way, Jesus demonstrated with his actions, even more than his words, that he considered his father to be worthy of worship. That's worthy of unqualified trust and obedience. So perhaps without fully understanding exactly why God required his obedience unto death, Jesus knew that his father was worthy of that obedience he knew better than anyone before or since the character of Israel's God as the God of unqualified holy love. It was the love of God for Israel that drove Jesus to the cross. And Jesus knew this love at first hand through his communion with the Father. Just ask yourself, what could possibly possess a person to use these words to appropriate these words that I'm going to read um, from Isaiah as Jesus does in Luke's gospel. What does he say? He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus knew God, and he knew the character of God at first hand through the power of the Spirit of God. He knew the one who he was obeying. Uh, And he embraced the character of his God, including God's concern for the god forsakenness or for those who many regard as God-forsaken. So God was, to Jesus, a near and present will to love, and the Spirit of God was the driving wind in the sail of the willing obedience of Jesus. So we could say that um, the love of God was poured out into the heart of the man Jesus of Nazareth by the power of the Holy Spirit given to him in the pattern of Romans 5.5. 5. And in the end, Jesus placed all of his hope in his Father as the God of the living. I brought this up last time I spoke, but uh, there are certain religious leaders that came to him and wanted to debate about whether there's any hope beyond the grave, which in their verbiage was uh, whether there is a resurrection. And in three of the Gospels, Jesus tells them the same thing. He tells them that The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And that means that those who walk with God in this life, they enjoy a fellowship with God that um, that's stronger than death. And that fellowship is the true basis for their hope. That means that hope in a hopeless place comes from firsthand knowledge of God's character. Uh, It's not cheap or feeble. Hope is an expensive thing. And Christian hope is a living hope because it's a hope that stems from fellowship with the living God and an experience of the character and the power conveyed to us by the Spirit of God. So let's go back to Romans five five, which I think brings these two things together that I've been trying to uh, describe. Romans 5.5 5 gives us, like, the basis for Christian hope. It says, hope does not disappoint us, not even in the God-forsaken place. Not because God behaves as expected, and not because we can see the end from the beginning, and the beginning from the end. Often we're looking for an explanation to make us feel better, but that's rarely actually available to us. Um, Hope doesn't disappoint us because we know, at first hand, the character of the God of the living, the one upon whom and in whom all of our hope rests. We hope because we have knowledge at first hand through our experience of the love of God in our conscience and in our encounter with one another knowledge that the world is governed by a God who is actually worthy of our worship a God who is trustworthy and who acts out of the utmost love and concern for all people even and especially those regarded as as God forsaken So I'm going to finish with three uh, remarks here. The first one is this: um, I think we should be careful when and how we use the word uh, God. Words mean to us um, whatever we decide they mean to us. There's nothing. There's, there's literally, absolutely nothing to stop me from redefining every single word I use, except that nobody would understand me. But I'm free to do that. I have the freedom to choose what I mean by the words I use, um, and that what that means is that the words that I use they can they serve the purposes that I use them for, right? Uh, and the words I use can either illuminate or they can obscure certain crucial elements in the world around me, in my experience of the world around me. And this is true of the word God as well. So with that in mind, I'd like to share what I think is the most helpful definition that I've found for God and what it, and, and how it can be helpful. I learned this from the philosopher Paul Moser that I mentioned earlier. Okay, so God is, in the way I use the word, whatever or whoever turns out to actually be worthy of worship, where worship is unqualified trust, obedience, and adoration. So put another way, Someone or something actually has to qualify as God, in my sense of the word, and it can only qualify if it's worthy of my trust, obedience, and adoration. Um, God is God because God is worthy of worship. And the key thing here is worthiness. All sorts of things receive worship without being worthy of the worship they receive And there's a biblical word for that, and that word is idol. And the worship of that which is unworthy is called idolatry, right? And this is true even if the thing that you worship, although it's unworthy of worship, is spelt G-O-D. It can still be uh, an idol and a false target of our trust. So we do well to ask ourselves... Is that which we worship, whatever, or whoever it happens to be, is that which we trust and adore and um, obey, is it actually worthy of the worship that we give it? And if not, then we we should consider stopping. And once we talk about God in these terms, we need to ask ourselves, what does it actually take to be worthy of worship? And the answer, to make a long story short, the answer, it seems to be, to me, has often been described using the word holiness or righteous love. Uh, and that is that God, if in fact God, is worthy of worship and therefore trustworthy. So if there is a God, that means that there's something that we can and should trust without any reservations or limitations. And if not, then there isn't. Then there's no hope. Uh, this means that if there's a God, then that God is doing, right now in our actual world, all that can all that can be done to extend and promote the righteous love of God to and among all people, including and especially the so-called God-forsaken. That's what it means to say that God exists for me. Um, A God who hates God's enemies or those at the margins is not trustworthy to those people. And so it's not actually worthy of worship, and so it's not actually God after all. It was a mistake to call it God in the first place. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and found something encouraging or challenging to dwell on. I'd love to hear back from you. Please leave me an audio message. Just go to the podcast website, anchor.fm slash ben-naismith and click Message. I might even include your voice in a future episode. Until then, let's imitate Paul as he imitates Christ.